Hello, I'm Kale Maestri. In today's episode, we're doing something a little different and looking back to see what we can learn from season one of Engineering Reimagined. Engineers create a positive legacy for humanity. The work they do makes a difference in the lives of current and future generations. Think about the cup you drank your coffee out of this morning. What was it made of? Did you travel to work by catching a train? Or walk across a bridge to get to your office? In the future, would you hop into an autonomous car? I certainly would. But there are major barriers that need to be overcome to make this dream a reality. What does it take to solve these sorts of complex challenges? The inspiring guests we've interviewed for this podcast may provide a clue. When we asked about how they're helping to reimagine the future, three key themes emerged. Passion, collaboration, and innovation. Today we're sharing highlights from three episodes spanning sustainability, the law, and Mars that sparked great debate and explored these areas in detail. There was no shortage of passion, collaboration, and innovation in our chat with University of New South Wales professor Veena Sahajwala, who invented green steel technology, which has transformed recycling. Interviewing Veena is Kurosh Kevani, Oricon's Managing Director for Design, Innovation, and Eminence. What inspired Professor Sahajwala to lead us to a better future? Let's find out. Veena is revolutionizing the science of recycling to help global industries safely use toxic and complex wastes as low-cost alternatives to raw materials and fossil fuels. Veena's passion focuses on mining the mountains of rubbish and waste materials produced by modern society and reusing them in industrial processes or to create new goods. Vina, one of your major breakthroughs came when you invented an environmentally friendly process that recycled rubber tires from used cars into part replacement in steelmaking. Your process was patented, won multiple awards, required less energy, reduced carbon emissions, and reframed rubbish as a valuable resource. The first question I have is, why had no one else thought of doing this? Sometimes it's one of those discoveries that actually happens because you've thought about the science for so long. It was very much about saying, well, you know, steelmaking requires all kinds of exciting high temperature chemical reactions. So it's about where at the molecular level we can source these types of inputs from. You know, people may realize that steel is nothing but an alloy and at the very basic level it's iron and carbon uh, and potentially many other elements in it. So the ability to in fact have, you know, another source that can offer carbon as a fantastic resource in that process of making steel uh, was really something that came about as a result of one of those you know, moments when you're sitting and looking at the phenomena in your labs and you actually are going, wait a minute, actually at such high temperatures, the transformation of complex materials in fact takes place to the point where we can reform those fundamental molecules. So steel making temperatures 
are so high that at 1550 degrees Celsius, you're triggering off that transformation. What we've done is reformed that, you know, complex tire into these absolutely simple, you know, molecules of gas. So that's really where it's, it's exciting to think that, you know, we should be looking at materials, not just simply at the macro level, you know, a big tire, but rather if you could zoom down at the micro level and you could actually reimagine what those elements might look like under different manufacturing conditions, you know, we, there should be no limits mm. in the way we look at how our resources are in fact being sourced. To me, it's, it's absolutely fascinating and mind-blowing and, and that's why I love engineering so mm-hmm. much. Where are we at with the industry uptake of this process in terms of percentage of steels being made using this recycled tyre? Yeah, we've been really very, very privileged that uh, we've got industry partners, you know, in Australia and, of course, in in other parts of the world who've been excited about the technology. Uh, We've indeed commercialised this technology in Australia and uh, overseas, um, and that's been absolutely fantastic privilege for for me and our team. When you collectively look at, you know, number of tyres that we've recycled as a result of this green steel technology in Australia and overseas, we've actually... Uh, exceeded 11 million tyres globally uh, using using our technology. That's fascinating. I guess that's, the outcome is for all of us to see. The second question f- for you on, on that note is why field of waste? What inspired you to focus on that area? There are, um, you know, a few sort of elements as to why, you know, I was passionate about waste uh, from, from early days when I was a kid growing up in Mumbai. Um, because, you know, I mean, one thing is, of course, um, in places like Mumbai, you do see waste everywhere. But as um, people may know that, you know, there are many, many people who make a living as waste pickers. Um, and, and I think to me, that's a very important function. You know, our society cannot exist if if we don't have that very important function. So it's an important part of our everyday lives, particularly in so many developing, you know, economies where we hear about stories where people work under some very horrific conditions, uh, working with really difficult waste materials. There was also an element that we are not recognising and rewarding uh, people who work in that space. And what if we could you know, value add. So it it doesn't just stop at picking and collecting waste, but rather also transforming them into value-added materials and products. That was fascinating. The passion that Veena has for her work is truly inspiring, and I can't wait to see what she does next. Her team have recently worked with Planet Arc to create a tile made of ground-up coffee beans. The innovation is incredible. Next, what did we learn from a professor of law to help us reimagine engineering? Many contracts contain legal jargon beyond the comprehension of most people. Professor Camilla Anderson from the University of Western Australia has trailblazed the development of visual contracts. How did lawyers and engineers come together to innovate? Interviewing Professor Anderson is John Maguire, Oricon's Managing Director for Built Environment. Welcome, Camilla. It's great to have you here. Now, we've known each other for probably the last two years, working together to find out how lawyers and engineers might be able to come together to innovate and perhaps disrupt engineering 
and the law at the same time. Isn't that a cool project? It's very cool. And it's been an awesome two years. I couldn't have had a better sponsor than, than you and Oricon. It's been a great ride and it's led to so many big things. So, yes, I often define this project as changing the moment you walked through my door and it really did. So cool and thank you. And, uh, and we're going to learn all about it now. So if we go back to the beginning and you recently uh, mentioned to me that in Australia, two insurance companies are refunding more than 60 million Australian dollars to over 110,000 consumers after selling insurance that the corporate regulator ASIC said was of little value. This just highlights that contracts and agreements are so often incomprehensible that we don't bother to read them, let alone understand them. So Taking that as, as a background, my first question to you is what prompted you to go down the path of researching and developing a visual contract? Well, as I often say when I'm asked about where this crazy project of comic book contracts came from, it was never really meant to be a project. It sort of happened, as I think some of the best things in life do. Um, I was doing a favour for a friend, Adrian, from the engineering department. He wanted me to draw up a contract, but as he said, oh, he bloody hates lawyers and they're always being so argumentative and putting things up that people don't really want to read and making enemies out of people. And we we sort of agreed that on the back of some of the design thinking that was going on in Scandinavia and, and thinking about visuals and contracting, why not just take the leap and do a comic contract? And so we did this and, and I we had fun with it and I didn't think much more of it. Um, and then I informed my um, my research colleagues in Scandinavia in the proactive Nordic think tank about what we'd been doing. They got very excited and they linked me up with Robert de Roy in South Africa who was doing similar comic contracts but for very different reasons, not to try and make people read contracts but to make sure that they could because most of the people that he was contracting with were illiterate domestic farm workers or domestic workers. So very different avenues into a very similar project. And the moment Robert and I linked up, uh, the media got wind of it and they were very excited about what we were doing in terms of visualizing contracts and bam, suddenly we were getting all this interest. And then you walked in my door uh, saying that you would be very keen for us to work with Oricon on your employment contract. And the rest is, is more or less history. It is really shocking to me as a lawyer when I realize exactly how broken contract law has become to the extent that people not only don't read their contracts, they don't expect to be able to read them, they don't expect to engage with them at all, and the contracts are just punitive instruments for lawyers. So we've now had the employment contract, the comic contract in Oricon for over a year, and we have had 800-plus employees engaged on this new contract, and the results to date have been beyond all of our wildest expectations. Um, Clearly, we haven't had a dispute, which is a positive thing, but it was the other benefits that we're seeing, just the immediate engagement with employees to Oricon, understanding this notion of playful and serious intent, this notion of innovation, and this notion of culture, and that has been really important to us. What else has been happening in this space, and and, and where is this now going? I mean, is, is, is there a large amount of interest in, in this particular field? There certainly is. Um, I've been... I've been engaging more with industry over the last year and a half than I have the whole rest of my career in terms of prospective engagement with with what they actually do, which is very gratifying. Uh, I've always had industry engagement, but now it's gone completely amok, and that's great. Um, So I can't tell you who they are, um, but I can confirm we have a large research project with a major bank, um, and they are hoping 
to do to their banking client contracts, what you've done with your employment contracts, change the face of, of banking and change the way that their clients engage with their legal rights because clients don't read their contracts, but they really should. <laughs> um, and they're hoping to increase transparency in, in a lot of different aspects of the relationship with clients, which is very encouraging. What does this mean to you as a, as a lawyer starting uh, in Europe and, and coming to Australia and practicing the law and teaching the law? What does it mean to you to be able to, at this part in your career, changing the face of law, changing how parties come together. How does that make you feel? Oh, I think you just made me blush, John. <laughs> That's a very rare feat. Well done. <laughs> I think it's it's humbling. It's uh, I uh, People call me an innovator and an entrepreneur, and I get a bit cagey about that because I don't see myself as an innovator and entrepreneur. I, I'm a researcher. It's my job, right? It's I'm supposed to rattle the cage and, and see if new things work or don't work. That was such a great example of how passion and collaboration can lead to innovation. Next, let's hear from someone who has volunteered to leave Earth permanently and move to Mars. Oricon associate Dr. Gabby Wojtovitz interviewed Dr. Adriana Marais, one of Africa's foremost physicists and an aspiring extraterrestrial. Is living on the red planet possible? Since childhood, you have dreamed of living on another planet. What is the appeal? I don't know. I just guess I just got born with a bigger view of my place in the universe. <laughs> no, I've never seen myself as being limited to this planet. And there's a lot of um, odd things that we do on this planet. And my real hope is that we can kind of upgrade the way we think here on Earth. And space exploration seems to be an extreme but effective way of really forcing people to think differently by achieving really uh, improbable things. <laughs> Does anything about it scare you? No, I mean, what scares me is the kind of blindfolded way in which people on Earth live. Um, our population is exponentially increasing, in, in a lot of areas at least. Um, guess what? Our resources are constant. We're living on the same rock that we've always been living on, and we carry on consuming at the same rate. This is scary. <laughs> this is crazy. Wanting to go and establish a extremely resource-constrained uh, settlement on another planet this is great. This is the future. Um, demonstrating how we can live in resource-scarce environments. Um, I hope we don't find ourselves in a situation on Earth where we are forced to, to deal with such a situation. I hope rather that we can gradually just change the way we behave. But um, unfortunately, we don't seem to be acting quick enough. And perhaps uh, demonstrating a community on the surface of Mars is the wake-up call that people on Earth need as to what's possible using solar power, highly efficient water management systems, and even air production from scratch. You know, how do we engineer systems that can be manufactured from local resources without negatively impacting the environment? Once we have these resources, how can we like keep them within the system? Um, and all the equipment and construction implications that come with that, um, also based on what we're going to be able to access on Mars. So whatever we extract will be have been painfully extracted with a lot of power resources used for that. So it would not make sense to not recycle. You know, even the sweat that comes off your forehead would, in principle, get sucked into the ventilator and purified. You know, the salts we put on the table in the water. <laughs> now you can tell I'm not an engineer, but <laughs> in principle, these things are possible. And when you're looking on a molecular level at resources and like living such a thin line between between life and death, um, yeah, then you really realize how precious resources are and how much of a, an easy ride we have here on Earth. 
What do your family and friends think of you wanting to live on another planet? Totally supportive. Think it's chameleon character. Um, yeah, would be proud to know me if this happens. So of course this hasn't happened yet, and I'm not an astronaut yet. I haven't been to space. Being one of the first humans to live on Mars, this is a, a huge dream. But I'm into big ideas. Um, I don't think I've got any time to waste in terms of investing in smaller. You know, not that there's such a thing as a small idea, but I'm like I'm on this planet once. Let me try and leave it. <laughs> So, yeah, friends and family can understand that that's who I am. And, yeah, my dad's written a book based on me. My mother does numerous interviews saying, saying she would never stand in the way of a dream of a child of hers because a lot of other mothers ask her, how can you let your daughter go? And she's like, let? How could I prevent my child from, <laughs> from uh, living her dream? So, yeah, I'm lucky to have a supportive friend and family base. The Mars One Project has had financial problems. Do you still believe the project will get you to Mars? The Mars One project has never had any money. So for us in Mars One, nothing changes. Guess what? We don't have a billionaire funder, unlucky us. Um, so funding has always been a challenge um, and it continues to be. Um, the Mars One project has been hugely successful. Um, Sheldon Cooper has volunteered for Mars One on, on the Big Bang Theory. Lisa Simpson has volunteered for the Mars One project on The Simpsons. Um, Cartman's girlfriend's volunteered for the Mars One project on South Park. And uh, yeah, this is amusing, but also important because this has been the contribution. It's entered into conversations. Um, even when it's bad press, it's press about getting to Mars, which is what we didn't have before. Um, we've got the National Geographic series on Mars. We've got The Martian with Matt Damon. Um, we've got all of this kind of popular culture conversation happening around the project. Um, so in my mind, the Mars One project has already been a success. It's brought together 100 people who are dedicated and prepared to you know, give up their life on Earth to make this possible. And the opportunity to count myself amongst these other 99 um, has really been a privilege. Um, so there's absolutely nothing that's gone wrong with the Mars One project. Maybe they've bitten off more than they can chew, but that remains to be seen. <laughs> I mean, personally, I don't think any of the 99 others or myself have ever invested all of our hope with Mars One. It's a startup, you know, a startup having financial problems. It's not really uncommon. Personally, I've been endeavoring on all fronts um, to support the Mars One project and do parallel activities. The Foundation for Space Development South Africa is initiating a project for the winter of 2020 where we will take a dozen or so people to Antarctica for an overwinter expedition. It's an off-world settlement simulation experiment. So the conditions in Antarctica, especially during winter, most closely are most closely analogous with what it would be like to live off Earth. It's completely isolated. No ships can come and go. No helicopters can come and go. There's no visibility, no light for some days. So these conditions are yeah, close to the kind of cold you will experience on Mars, the kind of isolation. And for the hard testing of hardware, this provides a fantastic opportunity to test, you know, the lifetime of lithium batteries under these conditions. Can we support the diesel generators with some hydrogen fuel cells? Can we develop a wind-powered technology, um, power generation system? Uh, how will we grow food indoors? So this is very analogous to what we would do on Mars. Um, Water is easily accessible in Antarctica. You just have to shovel it. So that will be part of our activities. On Mars, it's a bit more complicated, whereby there's only 2% of the sand is ice. Importantly, besides the technology and the research aspects of it, um, the community and the interaction between the people will really be crucial in terms of the success or failure of the projects that each person brings to the to the mission. So we'll be opening up applications to the public. We haven't announced it yet. We're still finalizing discussions with partners from government agencies to tech companies 
companies to aerospace companies. We hope you enjoyed this recap of our first season of Engineering Reimagined. Don't forget to share this episode on social media and leave a review for us where you're listening. We want to know what you think. Tell a friend or colleague about us. They can find the podcast by searching Engineering Reimagined wherever they listen to podcasts. Coming up next, we'll reveal the most popular episode of season one. Stay tuned.